I invite you, if you have not already, to turn to the book of Micah, as we do. Let's pray again. O God, open our eyes to behold wonders from your word, that we may believe what it teaches, obey what it commands, trust what it promises, for your glory and our good. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening, we pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Micah chapter 1. In June of 1814, British troops landed at the mouth of the, let's see if I can get the pronunciation right, Patuxent River in Maryland. Over the course of the next two months or so, they, they advanced steadily through Calvert and St. Mary's counties, winning a series of small skirmishes with American troops, moving closer and closer to the new capital of the young United States, Washington, D.C. This campaign culminated on August 24th, 1814, when this British army routed an American force at the Battle of Bladensburg. President James Madison and most of the American government and the military personnel who were still present fled Washington to Brookville, Maryland, and that evening the triumphant British troops entered the American capital and set it on fire. I suspect that it's somewhat difficult for most of us, not all of us, I know, but maybe most of us, to imagine what it would be like for a foreign army to be at the gates, the terror and the panic that it would bring about. What must the residents of the young District of Columbia have been thinking as they received word over the course of these two months of the steady advance of an enemy army toward their doorstep, to hear of defeat after defeat, eventually to flee in panic as the city went up in flames. How much more terrifying would this prospect be if you knew that this ominous and inevitable foe that was coming was the judgment of God against your sin. This event in our nation's history, in our region's history, gives a a faint picture of what we read in Micah 1. In Micah 1, we read this, this announcement of God's coming judgment, a judgment ultimately brought about by the sin of His people, judgment that He is meeting out through the invasion of a foreign army, come to punish His people for their sin. Micah 1 is the beginning of God's lawsuit against His rebellious people, and it includes both the the announcement of the crime and the punishment, the sin and the judgment. And I would bet that this is probably not a passage that you drift to whenever you can't think of what to read in Scripture. This one is probably not well-worn in your Bible. It's a a sobering passage, and it's calculated to leave us with one clear impression, one main point, that God will judge all sin justly. God will judge all sin justly. Micah 1, verses 2 to 16, breaks down into two big parts that we'll look at this morning. First, uh, there's an announcement of God's coming judgment and its cause in verses 2 to 5. And then 
verses 6 to 16 outline that, that judgment that's going to be brought first to the, the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital, Samaria, and then the southern kingdom of Judah in Micah's day. And it's, it's there in the, in the second part that we see more clearly, not just that God is going to judge sin, but that God's judgment against sin is entirely just. So first, we'll begin verses 2 to 5 with the certain reality that this passage presents us with. The sobering truth, God will judge sin. Now, as you might expect, this concept is not especially popular in our culture. I think it would be wrong to say that such an attitude is just unique to our culture, our day. I don't think that the claim that God will judge sin has ever been particularly popular with any culture, with any people, at any time. So verses 2 to 5 outline God coming in judgment. We, we may tend to bristle at this idea. Even, even we who know that this is good and right and true, that God is entirely right to do this, our first tendency, if we're not careful, may be to say, oh, it seems a little harsh. But this attitude is just an echo of Satan's first lie, isn't it? What does he tell Eve in the garden? You shall not surely die. God won't judge you. He's bluffing. And since then, that that lie has become a part of the internal soundtrack that plays in the minds of all people. You will not surely die. This tendency, however, is is quickly corrected by God's Word if we will listen to it. So what do we read in Micah? Verses 2 to 4, he announces this reality that God is, is coming in judgment. So look with me at verse 2. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. You may recall that last week I, I said that the, the prophets, and Micah's a prophet, and the prophets in, in the Old Testament act like covenant prosecutors, presenting God's lawsuit against His sinful and rebellious people. And here we have what amounts to, to Micah serving in that capacity, calling the, the cosmic courtroom to order. Yes, I know the prosecutors don't call the courtroom to order. It's the bailiff. Please don't correct me. Micah calls the courtroom to order as the trial begins. God says He is the one who's going to bear witness in this trial. He Himself is going to provide the eyewitness testimony that indicts the defendants. But He's not only going to be the chief witness, which if the Lord is the chief witness against you, you're in trouble since He knows all and sees all. But he's not only going to be the chief witness, he's also going to be the judge. Verses 3 and 4. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him. The valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. This is not so much a, a literal description of what's going to happen in Micah's days. As I said before, we learn later that, that God's judgment is actually coming in the form of an, 
of a foreign army invading his people. But this is a poetic description that utilizes the, the imagery that, uh, that we see here to describe this awesome and matchless power of God, who is the judge of all the earth. And in the presence of this almighty judge, nothing can stand. The earth itself would melt away. Now, at this point, you might imagine the Israelites cheering. Because Micah's call to order in verse 2 is really addressed to all of the peoples of the world. Hear you peoples, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it. So the Israelites may have been prone to think that this meant that it was these people who were on trial. You can imagine that those listening, thinking, yeah, that's right, you tell them, Micah. God's going to judge those wicked people out there. He's finally going to get them. But it's a trap. It's a, it's a rhetorical ploy. Micah is getting them to lean in before he unleashes this devastating right hook in verse 5. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? God is coming to judge his own people for their idolatry. Micah identifies the defendants and the charges. The objects of judgment are the people of Israel. Jacob, a poetic name for for especially the northern kingdom. He mentions Jerusalem, Samaria. God is coming to judge His own people. And it's because of their sins that God is coming to judge them. He's coming to bear witness against them for their sins and to judge them. And the reality is all all sin deserves God's judgment. We see that very clearly throughout the Scriptures. But Micah has something more specific in view here, a a specific sin. See, three times in this chapter, he calls out the the transgression of the people, twice in verse 5, then again in verse 13. And that word uh, transgression could also be translated as rebellion, uh, but that doesn't quite capture the the meaning in in Hebrew. The the idea is something uh, like one who rebels against God, uh, breaks with Him, takes away what is His, robs, embezzles, and misappropriates it. It's it's much closer to this idea of breaking covenant with God and giving giving what was due to God as their obligations to Him to something else. And that makes sense because the specific sin that Micah had in view was idolatry. We talked about this a little bit last week, that that the two sins that really seem to drive the book of Micah as he's announcing God's judgment against sin are idolatry and injustice. And here in chapter 1, we see it's idolatry that is in focus. The people had rebelled against God, they'd broken covenant with Him, and they'd taken something that was rightfully His and misappropriated it, given it to others. That was their worship the love of their hearts. That focus is seen most clearly in verse 7 as we see him announce this this judgment against Samaria. He says that all her idols will be broken into pieces. All her temple gifts 
will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Those things, those idols that cause Israel to sin are specially devoted to destruction. But we also find this idea of idolatry earlier in verse 3. We read that God is coming down, it says, to tread on the heights of the earth. That word heights can mean just mountains, but I think better, especially in this context, can be translated as high places. This is the word that was used throughout the Old Testament and is actually used later in this chapter to describe the high places, these, these hilltop shrines and altars that were the centerpiece of idolatrous worship in Israel. So when we, when we read about one of Judah's good kings coming to the throne, we read that he destroyed the high places. He tore them down. And then when we read about one of the wicked kings coming to power, we consistently hear that he rebuilt the high places. This was a, a struggle back and forth through Israel's history, that these, these were evidence of Israel's idolatry, their spiritual adultery against God. And so in verse 3, we, we read, God is coming to tread upon the high places of the land. That is, he's going to crush their idolatrous worship. And this idolatrous worship is not just limited to the northern kingdom and its capital, Samaria. The northern kingdom of Israel was notoriously wicked and faithless. We see that over and over again in the accounts of Israel's history in Scripture. But it's not just coming to them. We read at the end of verse 5 this extraordinary rhetorical question. What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Now stop for a second and consider how that may have landed on Micah's audience. He just said that the, the center of idolatrous worship in Judah is Jerusalem. This is the, the place that's to be the center of the worship of the one true God, the place that God himself chose to manifest his presence in the temple, the place where sacrifice for sin is made, and yet now, Micah says, it has become nothing more than another pagan shrine. To say this would have been shockingly offensive to his hearers is an understatement. It would be as if I stood up here and said to you, what is the high place of northern Virginia? Is it not Cornerstone? I have a feeling you, you wouldn't be endeared to me if I came with that accusation. And Neither was Micah endeared to his audience. But Micah's calling was not to pander to the wishes of his audience, but rather, as he says in chapter 3, verse 8, his calling was to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Incidentally, I am not saying that about Cornerstone. Please don't email me and say, why did you call us all a bunch of idolaters? But it's on account of this rampant idolatry in, in Israel, Micah says, that God is coming to judge his disobedient people. Now, it's it's unlikely, I I suspect, that you're tempted to go burn incense at a pagan shrine or altar. If you are tempted to do that, please come talk to me. But but I suspect that's not the case with you. But, But idolatry is not less a problem for us than it was for them. It just looks different. Idolatry is is more than just the outright worship of statues, false deities. At root, idolatry is the exchange of the worship of God for the worship of anything that is not God. 
That's what Paul says in Romans 1. He describes the nature of sin, saying that they, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. And we all do this in one way or another. None of us are immune from it. So consider how you might fill in the blanks to, to these statements. If I only had blank, then I would really be happy. If only blank happened, then I would be really fulfilled. Or if only blank was taken away, my life would be complete. Or if blank was taken away, my life would not be worth living. How would you fill in those blanks in your life? Lots of things can become idols for us. Work, money, sex, power, family, relationships, politics, success, influence, comfort. Things that may not in and of themselves be bad, but when we exchange the worship of God for devotion to these things, they become idols in our life. Sometimes, however, it's, it's even more subtle than that. We wouldn't go so far as to say that if I, if I got this, then finally my life would be complete, or if, if that was taken away, my life would be meaningless. We, we probably know better than to say that, but in practical ways, our lives begin to revolve around something other than Christ. Some of those things that I, I just listed, they're not, they're not bad in themselves, but when we elevate them to a place that rightfully belongs to God, they become idols. They become, practically speaking, the objects of our devotion, the center of our worship, the resting place of our affections. But God has said that, that we, His people, are to have no other gods before Him. Regardless of how much we, we love our idols, they will not love us back. They will always leave us empty and unsatisfied because they were never meant to bear the weight of our worship and they are incapable of satisfying our souls. Only God can do that. So idolatry is a sin of the highest order and Micah tells us that it rightly brings the judgment of God and was bringing the judgment of God on the people of Israel in his day. So the first few verses, verses 2 to 5, tell us something about the the certainty and the cause of God's coming judgment. The rest of the chapter shows us that God's judgment is entirely just. There can be no question as to its legitimacy, its validity, its suitability. The verdict and the sentence are entirely right. So as we look through the, the rest of the chapter, there's three claims that the passage makes about God's judgment. We say that God's judgment of sin is, is just. We mean at least, at minimum, these three things. That God's judgment is deserved, that it's proportional, and that it's impartial. All right? So first, God's judgment, we see, is just because it's deserved. We've already seen evidence of this already in the, in the, in the text. God has testified against His people. It's the the guilt of their sin that is bringing this judgment, we see in verse 5. It's not, it's not coming against those who are innocent. 
It's coming against those who have sinned, right? Verse 5, all of this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. And then verse 6, therefore, because of their sins, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley. I will lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Micah is describing the, the coming destruction of Samaria by this invading Assyrian army. You can go back and read about how this happened in 2 Kings 17. And while the Assyrians were to be the the instrument of that destruction, they're they're what God used, the tool that God used to bring about His judgment. God makes it clear that He is the one who is doing it. It is His judgment brought upon them because of their sin. Right? What does He say in verse 6? He doesn't say, therefore, the Assyrians will make Samaria a heap of rubble. He says, therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble. But there's no miscarriage of justice here. There's no wrongful conviction. There's no evidence yet to be uncovered that will actually prove the defendant's innocence. It's not arbitrary, capricious, or extreme. The people's sinful actions merited, earned God's judgment. Now, this should not have blindsided the people of Israel. There's no way that they could plead ignorance of God's requirements and say, well, God, we didn't know. We didn't know that this was going to happen. We didn't know that that's what you, what you wanted. They couldn't do that because this is exactly what God said would happen if His people were unfaithful to their covenant with Him. In Leviticus 26, another passage that I'm sure is frequented by you in your morning devotions, God issued warnings about covenant unfaithfulness to the people. And this is what He said. See if you can you can pick up on the similarities with what's happening in Micah's day. God says, if you continue to be hostile towards me, I myself will be hostile toward you and will afflict you for your sins seven times over. I will bring the sword on you to avenge the breaking of the covenant. And when you withdraw into your cities, I will send a plague among you and you will be given into enemy hands. And if in spite of this, you still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile towards me, then in my anger, I will be hostile toward you. And I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols. I will abhor you. I will turn your cities into ruins." And lay waste to your sanctuaries. I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I myself will lay waste the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. And just as God warned, so it came to pass. It came to pass because it was what the people rightly deserved for their sin. They were without excuse, and so were we. See, in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul reminds us that what may be known about God is plain because God has made it plain so that people are without excuse. And the result, he says, is that when God bears witness against us in our sin, every mouth is silenced and the whole world is held accountable to God. 
Left to ourselves, there's, there's no defense to mount, no appeal to make. So God's judgment against sin, both the people in Micah's day and, and ours, is entirely just because it's deserved. And second, God's judgment is just because it's proportional. That is to say that the, the punishment fits the crime. Fits the crime, just as we've seen, it's, it's exactly what God said He was going to do. God is not playing fast and loose with the rules. He's not changing His word, not changing His law to suit the circumstances. He doesn't adjust the sentencing guidelines on the fly to suit His present temperament. He's entirely consistent with what He already has laid down in His word. We also see something of the correspondence between the, the sin and the judgment in verse 7. We read that, since she, that's the city of Samaria, since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. So a way to understand this might be Micah saying that the people of Samaria had amassed their wealth and power through spiritual adultery. They had prostituted themselves to false gods and idols, and they had become prominent and powerful and yet had broken covenant with God. And so in a fitting reversal, the, the conquering Assyrian army would take the wealth of Israel as a prize of war and use it to celebrate their own victory by paying prostitutes. It's a, a visceral, graphic expression of God's Judgment, And I think the, the idea that we want to see here is that it fits the crime. There's a correspondence between the sin and the judgment. God does not employ cruel and unusual punishment. He does not hand down sentences that are either too lenient or too severe. His judgment is entirely in proportion to the sin committed. And this is important because I think that one of the objections that's often made, perhaps it's an objection that you yourself have had at one point or another, is that God's judgment seems harsh, overbearing, and excessive. But, but God's judgments are not arbitrary or disproportionate. The fact that we sometimes question the justice, either of the very presence of God's judgment or the proportion of God's judgments, reveals a few things about us. Sometimes it shows that we have too far low a view of sin. We think that it would be unjust to punish sin as God does. Maybe a slap on the wrist, but not, not eternal punishment, not, not the kind of punishment that we read about in the Scriptures, but sin, friends, sin is a deeper evil than we could ever imagine. And thinking that, well, that sin doesn't deserve that judgment reveals just how Lightly we take sin. I think it also shows that we often have too low a view of God. To think that God would not or should not punish sin is to think too lowly of His holiness and His righteousness and His purity and His goodness and, yes, even of His love. And I think related to that, it often shows that we have too high a view of ourselves. Right, by saying that we think God should go about judgment differently is to say that we think that we have a clearer view of what is right and wrong 
that God does. It's, it's us effectively saying that we think that we are more just and more compassionate than God. And friends, that's just blasphemous. We are neither more just nor more compassionate than God. Everything He does is perfect and right and good and just. God's judgment is just because it's deserved and because it's proportional. The punishment fits the crime. And then third, because it's impartial. God's judgment is just because it's impartial. It's, it's not just the especially wicked northern kingdom, the one that had no good kings and was idolatrous from the, the very beginning. It's not just them who are to be the recipients of God's judgment. Judah is going to be punished as well. Look at verse 9. Micah in verse 8 says, I'm going to mourn on account of this. Why? I'm going to mourn for Samaria's plague, that is Samaria's punishment. That word plague is related to the idea of uh, beating, uh, the, the, uh, the strokes, the stripes that Samaria had received. It's incurable. And... It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. And this isn't collateral damage. As if God was aiming at the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom just unfortunately happened to be in the blast radius. Judah is, is just as guilty and God's judgment is impartial. The same sin brings about the same judgment. We see that Judah's sin is the same as Israel's in a, in a few places. We've already noted Jerusalem had become the center of idolatrous worship in Micah's day. And again, in verse 9, we read, Samaria's plague has spread to Judah. And then in verse 13, we read about the city of Lachish, this prominent city in Judah. And Micah says that it was in Lachish where the sin of daughter Zion began. For the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Just as Israel was punished with invasion by a foreign army, so too would Judah be punished by military conquest. And that's really what we see in verses 10 to 16, which is a list of towns, each accompanied by some description, some negative action or description of that place. Now, these verses, verses 10 to 16, read somewhat strangely to us. Part of the problem is that we're unfamiliar with many of the locations that are being referenced. It might read differently if we substituted locations local to us. We could understand something about that. But these are locations that we are largely unfamiliar with because we don't live in Israel. Also unfamiliar because some of them, we don't exactly know where they were. We may have some basic idea, but we don't know exactly where they were. But another part of the problem is that there's a lot of Hebrew wordplay going on here. You may notice that in your, in your Bible. Your Bible has footnotes, and it might tell you that some of the names of these towns sound like or related to Hebrew words or, or Hebrew ideas. And so in Beth Ophrah, in verse 10, uh, Beth Ophrah means house of dust, and so the house of dust is told to Roll in the dust. That's a word, word play. Verse 11, where it says there's going to be no way to come out of the town of Za'anan, which sounds like the word for come out in Hebrew. 
But there's something else that's going on here besides all these kind of ironic poetic references that Micah is making in Hebrew. It's not a, a random collection of town names that just happen to make good Hebrew puns. This is a prophetic warning of an impending military disaster for Judah. And verse 10 tips us off to that. It begins with the words, tell it not in Gath. And this might not mean much to us, but to the Israelites, this would have been a, a well-known phrase. It's a quote from David's lament over the death of Saul and Jonathan in 2 Samuel 1. And it calls to mind uh, the whole of David's poem lamenting this terrible military defeat that the Israelites had at the hands of the Philistines. And so for, for Micah to begin this section with a quote like this, is to, to hint that what follows similarly describes an impending military catastrophe for Judah. I tried to think of something that would illustrate the rhetorical effect of this. You'll find quickly that my illustrations are often drawn from history because it's what I know. Here's what I came up with. In late 1776, Thomas Paine wrote what would become a famous pamphlet called The American Crisis. It was his reflection on the, the dire state of the American revolutionary cause following a series of crippling military defeats in the battles around New York the previous summer. And as the winter of 1776 approached, the Continental Army was on the, the verge of collapse and the revolution was in danger of complete failure. And so Paine writes this pamphlet and he begins with the somber words, these are the times that try men's souls. That might not be the, the best analogy, but this would be something like someone, of a, a prophet warning of an impending military disaster and crisis in America and would begin his warning with the words, these are the times that try men's souls. Harkens back to a, a disastrous past as an ominous sign of things to come. And what follows through the end of, of Micah chapter 1 is this poetic map of a region of Judah called the Shephelah, the foothills. This is a region to the west and southwest of Jerusalem. And like I said, we don't know the exact location of all of these towns, but using the ones that we do know, it seems like what we have here in verses 10 to 16 is effectively a map of the coming Assyrian invasion. As the Assyrian army enters Judah at Gath on the border with Philistia, and moves through the foothills, conquering these towns as they go. They fall one by one to the advancing Assyrian army. And ultimately, the Assyrians would lay siege to Jerusalem, just as Micah warns in verse 12, as he says, disaster has come from the Lord even to the gate of Jerusalem. And the chapter then ends with Micah telling the people of Jerusalem, like Samaria, the children in whom you delight will go from you into exile, the ultimate punishment of God for His people breaking the covenant was that He would take them out of the land He had given them. As a side note, we actually know from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles that Jerusalem didn't fall during this invasion, that Judah didn't go into exile for another 120 years or so. Now, just make a footnote of that. We're going to come back to that in a few weeks and something else that Micah says. 
But the thing here to note is that the the Assyrian invasion of, of Israel ended in the destruction of Samaria, the exile of the northern kingdom, and the same sins of idolatry bring the same judgment from God against the southern kingdom. That God's judgment is just because it's impartial. God doesn't play favorites. As if, well, I really like the southern kingdom. I'd really like to get rid of the northern kingdom, so I'm going to punish them, and I'm going to let the southern kingdom off easy. That's not just. And if God is entirely just in His judgment, even against the people of Israel, He will likewise be entirely just in the judgment He renders against the sin of all people, which may be why at the very beginning of the passage, He calls the whole earth to listen to this lawsuit. Not so that they can celebrate, look, God's people are getting what's coming to them, but so that they can be aware that this God, who is not limited to just this area along the Mediterranean Sea, but is the God of all the earth and will judge all sin, always does what is right. As we close, I I want to reflect on the, the implications that a text like this, a sobering text like this has for us. First, I, I think it's instructive for us to see how Micah responds to his own announcement of sin and judgment. He's not gleeful in his preaching, right? He's not like Jonah. You may recall in the book of Jonah, Jonah announces judgment against the city of Nineveh, and then he goes out of Nineveh, climbs up on a hill, and sits there to watch the fireworks. He couldn't wait for Nineveh to be blasted. Micah's not like that. Micah is devastated. Verse 8, he says, Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like the jackal and moan like the owl. And these are statements of deep sorrow, lament, anguish. He doesn't question the judgment and the justice of God or that the people deserve it. And yet, He's at the same time broken over the sin that made it necessary. And I think that tells us something about the way that we ought to react to sin and judgment, both in ourselves and in others as we observe. So it can be tempting for us in in our desire, our God-given desire, I might add, for true justice to be done in the world. It might be tempting for us as we look for evil and wickedness to be dealt with rightly and justly, it might be tempting to drift from an attitude of of sobriety to one of smug anticipation. We can find ourselves saying, I can't wait until those evil sinners out there get what's coming to them. We start sounding like the Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. God, thank you that we are not like other people who deserve your judgment. It's entirely right to desire God's justice to be done against sin. We see plenty of evidence of that in in Scripture. But here we see that Micah's reaction is that he's he's not poised to cheer as God just smokes his adversaries. He laments. And here we We have to remember, too, that God Himself, as He says in the book of Ezekiel, God Himself takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Let me say that again. God Himself 
the one who rightly and justly punishes sinners for their sins, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's what he has told us in his word. On the contrary, as Micah says in chapter 7, this God delights to show mercy. So this should tell us something about the way that we ought to respond as we consider God's judgment of sin. Yes, it's, it's right and good and just, and yes, at the same time, it ought to cause us to mourn and lament. If you struggle at all with the idea of a God who, who judges people, and I think that's somewhat common in our culture, maybe it's not as common in this room, but I think it's common in our culture, I think it's also important to recognize that the idea of living in a world where wickedness is not judged justly, where God is not faithful to His Word, to judge sin righteously, that's a terrifying and awful prospect. Considered in the abstract, it sounds quite loving and tolerant to say, well, God would never punish or judge anyone. A God who punishes people, they might say, is it's a moral monster. Why would, I could never believe in a God who would do that. But, but once you start to press into that, you find that it's actually a God who does not punish sinners, who is a moral monster. We would call a human judge that failed to properly punish a guilty party unjust. How would you view God if you knew that He was all-powerful and all-knowing and perfect, but that He would not punish wickedness or make sure all accounts are properly settled? No one wants to live in a world like that if you push deep enough. So deep down, I think the reason we don't often like to talk about God's just judgment is not just because we don't want to live in a world that is just. We, we do. We want to live in a world in which wickedness and evil is punished, or at least we should. I think the problem is that when we start to consider this, we realize that the wickedness and the evil that must be punished is not just out there. It's in here. That left to ourselves, we're all rightly under God's judgment. And so we will make all sorts of excuses for why well, my sin doesn't deserve punishment the same way as that sin. At least I'm not an axe murderer. At least I don't do this. At least I don't do this. But God doesn't grade on a curve. The Apostle Paul says the wages of sin is death. We are all rightly under God's judgment. You say, John, that's a very encouraging message this morning. I want to end by reflecting briefly on the way that, that we see this picked up in Jesus. You see, the New Testament tells us that God still judges sin. There's no, there's no difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament has not suddenly become a God of mercy, and the God of the Old Testament does not suddenly lose His desire for justice. In fact, Jesus Himself says that the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son, and that His judgment is 
just. It is Christ, the Apostle Peter says, who is the one God appointed to judge the living and the dead. And like Paul said as well to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, for He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed, and He has given proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. And so if you are here and you are visiting with us, if you're here and you are not a Christian, then friend, I am a messenger to you speaking on God's behalf. The Bible says that left to yourself, you are under His just and righteous condemnation. It's what He says in His Word, but God has no delight in your death and punishment, but rather He delights to show mercy. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is to judge the living and the dead. And He Himself, who is the judge, died to bear the just judgment due to your sin. Now He's risen from the dead, exalted as Lord and judge. And while there is still time, He invites you to take His death to count for yours, to take His perfect obedience and righteousness to count for yours, to, to trust in Him, to rest your hope on Him entirely for salvation from judgment. For the Bible says that people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And this is true, but Jesus Himself, the judge, said that whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. So friends, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you are a Christian, hearing again of God's judgment should be a sobering reminder of the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God. But it ought not frighten you. Because the one who is the judge of the living and the dead is the one by whom you have already been saved. And so we remember that Paul says in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And asks, who is the one who will condemn us? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised from the dead, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And so we who believe and are redeemed by Christ can sing with confidence and joy. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold uh, shall I stand in thy great day, the day of judgment. For who ought to my charge shall lay, fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear from guilt and shame. Praise be to God. Amen. I invite you now to please.